like most of us who have come to know Doug Talmy and his incredibly important books, I was excited when I heard that Doug had a new book coming out, The Nature of Oaks. My first thought was why oaks? Why a book just on oak trees? So I contacted Doug to see if he would once again join me on Nature Revisited and talk about his new book and why he pays homage to this giant of the tree world. After talking with Doug, it turns out the nature of oaks is far more than just a book about oaks. And that once again, Doug Talmy challenges us and shows us how we can become better stewards of our yards, our landscapes, and our planet. And that the mighty oak can and does play a major role in helping us to do that. So you ready to talk about the oak? I'm ready. Okay, first I would like to say that your book, which I enjoyed immensely, that the nature of oaks is an invitation to see nature as you do, to see the beauty, the fascination, and the importance of all the life support that these incredible trees provide. That's perfect. So, <laughs> so I would like to start with just how much is our ignorance of natural history affecting not only how we see the oak, but all plant life? It's, it's, it's probably the major contributing factor. Because if we, if we understood the importance of nature and what it was and what it did for us, even in a selfish way, we wouldn't treat it the way we do. But, you know, it's our ignorance that allows us to get out the bulldozer and just flatten everything as if it doesn't matter. And, and when you do that over the whole planet, it matters a whole bunch. It, you know, it's, I don't know, you're right, it's ignorance. You can say people don't care, but they don't care because they don't know how important it is. So why the oak? Why that tree? What makes it so interesting? That's a good question, and a lot of people are going to ask, why, why the oak, why not something else? The answer is, I could write a book about almost any other tree species. I chose the oak because I do like oaks, but I like oaks because of what they do, which is just about everything. Uh, I always talk about our properties needing to do four primary things. The first one is support the food web so that other living things can exist there. Plants capture the energy from the sun and they turn it into food, but that food is locked up in their leaves unless something eats those leaves and passes it on to animals. And most vertebrates do not eat leaves, don't eat plants at all. They eat something to eat plants. That something is typically insects, and now we know it's mostly caterpillars that are passing on that energy. Well, if we're going to support a food web in your yard and caterpillars are doing the main job, no other plant genus in the, in the country supports caterpillars as well as, as oaks do. There are over 900 species of caterpillars supported by oaks in this country. And where I live, it's 557. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're the best at, at supporting food webs. 
they also we also need to to sequester carbon. We got to pull that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and lock it up in plant tissues. But even more important, pump that that carbon into the soil for long-term storage. And by long-term, I'm talking about you know many tens of thousands of years. Well, the plants with the biggest root systems do that the best, and that's the oak. We also need to manage our watersheds, and for the very same reason, plants with the biggest root systems hold water on our properties better than plants with little root systems, like lawn. They've got tiny root systems. So when it rains hard, oaks are protecting watersheds in a couple of ways. They dampen the pounding rain. So when it rains hard, oaks have huge canopies, and it softens the, the pounding rain so that it doesn't compact the soil. Compacted soil doesn't absorb water as well which means when you get a heavy rain, the water just runs off. And you don't want water to leave your property. You want every drop that falls on your property to stay on your property. And oaks are great at managing the watershed. But then also those huge root systems are absorbing tons of water and keeping it from running off. The fourth thing every property needs to do is sustain a complex, diverse community of pollinators, primarily our native bees. Now, oaks are wind-pollinated. So they're not going to they're not going to win that that contest, but it's interesting because there's recent research that shows that when oak catkins are mature and the pollen is actually ready to drop, there are a lot of spring bees that actually go to oak pollens and gather the pollen up, use it. They just don't pollinate the female flowers. They're not carrying it to the female parts of the of the oak. We used to think oaks contributed nothing to to pollinators, but that's not true. They are contributing. So in terms of those those four types of ecosystem services, oaks are superior. They're doing a great job. So how large is the oak family? Um, I mean, does the oak that grows here in New England going to be the same oak that grows in California? No. <laughs> we have over 90 species of oaks in this country alone, and there's 600 species in the world, <clears throat> a third of which are endangered, by the way. So it's a it's a speciose uh, genus of plants, and you know the example you gave the the oaks that grow on the East Coast do not grow in California, but California has more oak species than than any other state. So plenty of oaks grow there. I recently learned a lot of people, you know, they want to use oaks, but they say, well, they're all gigantic, and I can't put them in my my yard because they're too big. I learned there are I broke down two sheets full of oaks that are either small trees, shrubs, or even ground covers. So you suggest that we request some of these oaks from our local garden stores and nurseries. Absolutely. It's probably going to take a concerted effort to get some of the, the rarer species into the trade. But, you know, oaks are easy to grow. You get the acorn <laughs> and you put it in a pot and it sprouts. Some of these smaller oaks have very small distribution. So it's going to take a, a botanist to, you know, to actually do it. But the reason they haven't done it is there's been no demand for it. Well, now there is a demand for it. There was a paper that came out this fall about the request for native plants that's grown so rapidly in this country that the uh, demand is far outstripping the supply. And that's exactly what you need to spur on an, an industry. Uh, nurseries are not going to carry products that nobody buys, but people are buying them now. I do think that, that you know my oak book is going to stimulate interest to the point where people are going to be requesting oaks more than they ever did before. And one of the things that your book really does do is to show just how interesting, not just the oak, but trees. Like, for example, what is masting? 
Uh, you've probably, I'm sure you've noticed that uh, on some years, there seem to be acorns everywhere. That's what an oak mast is. It's when the conditions, and there are three or four hypotheses about why oaks mast. It's the production of acorns all at the same time. And it's usually not one species. It's usually one, one of the oak groups. There's the white oak group, and there's the red oak group. There's a canyon oak group. It wasn't this fall, but last fall, a year ago, there was a, a mast in the red oak group from at least Massachusetts down to Georgia. It was huge. And it was members of the Red Oak group. Everything was great, and they, they all produced their acorns at once. So there are a lot, of, a lot of possible reasons why they do that, none of which are mutually exclusive. They could be doing it for several reasons. But one of them is it swamps the acorn predators. A lot of things eat acorns. And if oaks made a regular batch every year, the, the animals that depended on acorns would build their populations to the point where there were always so many of them, they'd eat just about every acorn that fell. So the thought is that oaks mast in an unpredictable way. They go three or four years without masting, and then they have a giant mast. So that so many acorns are produced, the squirrels and the turkeys and the deer and everybody else cannot eat all the, the acorns. And then there's enough for, uh, you know, for the future generations of oaks. Another one is that it simply depends on the weather. Since oaks are wind-pollinated, you've got to have the right conditions when they, you know, when they put out their, their catkins and their pollen starts to blow around. If you have a freeze at the wrong time late in the, in the spring, it'll kill those catkins and you won't have a good uh, acorn production. If you have a lot of rain, you know, oak pollen does not float around well when it's raining a lot. And now we've, we've had that at our house here several years in a row. The third one is it's, it's allocation of resources. So it takes a lot of energy to make an acorn, especially to make thousands of acorns. And when they do that, on years they do that, the oak tree actually grows very little. All the en energy went into reproduction. So if they did that every single year, the oak tree would never grow. They massed a few, you know, once in a while, the other years, they put the energy into growth so that the, uh, you know, the tree actually gets, gets bigger. The next um, very interesting thing about an oak, you were talking in your, in your book about a gall. And I, I looked it up on the, to see what a gall looked like, and they're fascinating. So explain to us, if you will, what a gall is. A gall has been likened to a, a tumor, on a tree or on a, on a plant, lots of, you know, plants, all kinds of plants have galls. There are a few groups of insects that specialize in creating galls on plants. And the cynipid gall wasp are the biggest group. There are about 3,000 species of gall wasp in the world. And they, they really focus on oaks. Not all of them, but I think, I don't know, I think it's 90% of them are on oaks. These galls are, they have rapid growth in the beginning but it's very defined, and then it stops, and it's inside that growth that the little gall wasp develops. Again, it's a combination of selection pressures. The gall wasp female lays an egg, and when she's laying the egg, she injects chemicals that manipulate the growth of those plant cells into a species-specific shape that is the gall. And it's within that gall that her egg will hatch and develop in the larva. And it's the feeding of the larva also manipulates the shape of the gall because the larva is spitting um, these chemicals, growth hormones, on the inside of the gall, and it helps manipulate the gall. 
It's very complicated because a single species of gall wasp, most of them have what is called alternation of generations, where one generation is asexual. So all the, all the adults that come out are female. And they reproduce parthenogenetically. They don't need to mate. Uh, and they form one type of gall. The next generation is a sexual generation where both males and females are produced, and that generation forms a gall that is, looks entirely different. And not only that, the wasp looks entirely different. So you have one type of wasp looking one way coming out of one gall that looks one particular way, and then another wasp that looks one particular way but very different from the first one coming out of the second gall that looks very different from the first one, and it's all the same species. I still marvel at how they ever figured out that those were coming from the same species because they figured it out before DNA. I mean, you'd be able to figure it out with DNA pretty easily, but before you could do DNA analyses, they figured out finally that um, what looked like twice as many galls that are out there, it's actually cut in half because they're really from the same species. You talk about the, the oak as being a, a keystone plant. What, what exactly is a keystone plant? Well, if you can picture a Roman arch and picture the stone in the middle of the arch, that is called the keystone. And if you take that stone out, the arch collapses. Well, a keystone plant is so vital in a local food web that if you take it out of that food web, the food web collapses. And that's the role that oaks are playing in local food webs. They're producing so much of the food so if you take those keystone plants away, you don't have the caterpillar biomass that moves the energy from plants to other animals. And as I said, oaks do that better than anything else. So they not only are a keystone plant, they're the top keystone plant in 84% of the counties in North America. Why is it that oak trees don't drop their leaves as other trees? Right. That's called uh, marcescence which is a term I had never heard until I started to research for this book. But I, but I did know that oaks, particularly younger oaks, hold their leaves all the way until early April. Uh, and if you look carefully, let's say you have a 50-foot oak. It's the bottom maybe 30 feet of that tree that holds the leaves. The top part starts to drop the leaves. And if you have a 100-foot oak, most of the oak drops the leaves. So it's the younger, lower oak branches that retain their leaves. And again, there are a number of hypotheses about why they do that. So the, the thought is that marcescence helps protect those vital tissues in a couple of ways. First of all, the, the old leaves are, are all nestled around there, so it's very difficult to eat a bud without getting a mouthful of the old dead leaves that have no nutrition and don't taste good. So just their presence would deter herbivory in the lower branches. The other hypothesis is that you can't eat an oak branch with those leaves on there without making a lot of noise. So along with all those, those herbivores back then, there were a lot of big predators too. And they wanted to be able to browse without uh, drawing attention to themselves. So those are two hypotheses about why the leaves are retained. And one thing that, that supports those is that that's why it's only the lower branches that retain those leaves. As soon as you get higher than the tallest predators, that's when the leaves don't hang on there anymore. So, you know, maybe that's coincidental, but probably not. So what are some of the more interesting caterpillars? I have been counting the number of moss species at, at my house. I knew it was going to be a big job, but four years ago I decided I would, I would undertake that. 
I'm up to 1,031 species of moss that are using the trees and, and plants at, at my house. 29% of them are using oaks, and that's a lot of species. That's what 265 species of moths are using the oaks right at my house that I found so far, and I'm not done yet. Every time I go out and look, I, I find something else. Recently, there's been a lot of studies and talk about how trees might be communicating through their roots to other trees and plants communicating through their roots. I'd just like to get your thoughts on this, if I could. Well, I'm not a plant physiologist, but I do know in a natural setting where the plants are doing what they want to do. So oak root, root systems will go out easily 300 feet from the center of the tree if they're not interrupted by something. Of course, on the way, they hit other roots. So not only do they interlock themselves with those other roots, but they actually join tissues. And there's, there's amounting evidence that they can, they can share nutrients. So if you have one oak that is completely healthy and another oak that is sick, it's, you know, it's got a fungus or a disease or something, that sick oak can actually draw nutrients from the healthy one and live longer in doing that. So you, you do have this matrix of interconnected roots underground in a forest where nutrients are moving back and forth. Are they communicating when they do that? Well, they're transferring nutrients. When you, you write about what is fascinating to you, and because of that, your fascination becomes contagious, but you don't romanticize. Uh, most of what you just said is not intentional, and that's probably why I don't romanticize. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying, I think this is really neat. You know, if an author writes a novel, they always say you, you need to write about something you know about so that you, you get the, you know, the background facts correct. That's what I'm doing. I'm writing about things that really interest me and that I do have some background knowledge on. If I, if I see one of the really interesting caterpillars on oaks or any place else, and I take a picture of it, I said that, you know, to me, that is a fantastic animal. Whether somebody else sees it that way, I have no idea. I, I, I know what's pretty, the spiny oak slug caterpillar. It's just gorgeous. And I think most people w would agree with that. I have had uh, a woman in the front row of my talks cover her eyes so she wouldn't have to look at any caterpillars. So not everybody agrees with this, but all I do is write the way I feel. And, and if that happens, that's great. But beyond that, it's not intentional. That's what I, I loved about the book was that when I'm reading it, your fascination with this subject is very, very contagious. You know, I, I think I've been blessed that way. People say, when did you get interested? And I say, I was born interested. I can't yeah. take any credit for it at all. <laughs> because, you know, I have a sister and I have a brother. We all were in the same house. We were exposed to the yeah. same yard. We were exposed to the same lake we would go to. And they don't feel that way. And this is the way I am. It doesn't work for everybody. I'm sorry it doesn't work for everybody because it is necessary for everybody. The things that fascinate me are not optional things. They need to be here. Modern art doesn't need to be here for our own survival. So I think there's a difference in that, that sense. But I wish everybody were inherently – I wish everybody experienced the biophilia that E.O. Wilson writes about. I agree with him. Many people do. But, boy, if we, if we really had the biophilia that he's talking about, we wouldn't be wrecking it so fast. We'd appreciate it a little bit more and realize it's, it's uh, important.
now that people have read your book, they're going to want to go out and put a, I know I do, put an oak tree in their landscapes. Give us a, a little bit of advice before we go charging down to the nursery to get a, an oak tree about what we really should be looking at. Okay, the, the, the most important advice I can give you, you want to end up with a healthy oak. You want to end up with an oak that is going to grow as quickly as it can, you know, live long. You don't want an oak that's going to die in five years. That means you have to, you have to postpone your instant gratification and get the smallest oak you can because that will deliver the healthiest tree uh, over a period of years. If I plant an acorn, for example, it will germinate and it will grow that enormous root system without being disturbed. It will never be dug up and never have to be root pruned. You wait a few years and that tree that you planted very small will not only catch up to the big tree, it'll pass it, so it'll be much healthier. That's the big thing. A lot of people say, I can't afford an oak. Well, you can't afford a big oak, but get a small one. That's one of the things about the nursery industry. They want to sell you a bigger plant because they make more money, of course, and I get that. Oaks are tough because they do have those big root systems. So if you're going to grow an oak in a pot, um, you've got to sell it that first year. Otherwise, it's going to be, be a problem. So that's my advice. Start as small as you can. The next big challenge, of course, is, and this is almost everywhere, the deer want to come and eat that oak. So when you start small, it is deer candy, uh, which means you have to protect it with a cage. That is a serious downside for a lot of people, but it's worth it because that oak will grow happy and healthy. The deer won't kill it. It'll get past the point where the deer can hurt it. Not, not very long, not too many years. Then you can take the cage off. I always call that graduation. But that's how I ended up with the, with the oaks at my house. A third thing is don't fertilize it. Oaks are one of the many plants in North America that do well in poor soil. They don't want to be over-fertilized. You, if you put a lot of nitrogen, you can, you can get it to grow so fast that the bark actually splits and then, and then it dies. So uh, once they're in the ground and the roots are established, you don't have to water them after that and they're, they're carefree. You do have to keep the deer off though. I often felt while reading your book that the real lessons that you are trying to show us is that it's not just how we see and understand the oak but it's how we see and understand all of nature. That you are showing us how to observe and to see that part of nature we totally overlook. So my last question is, why did you write this book? Uh, for exactly that reason. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to illustrate that that tree standing in your yard is not just a, it's not just a thing it's a it's a living community and a whole host of interactions are happening on that tree all the time every month of the year so the goal was to get people to realize you're talking about an entire community yes i wrote about oaks but that type of community is on almost every other tree that's in your yard as long as it's a native tree that has co-evolved with the things that use it uh, and you're and you're right. Those are things that go unnoticed, totally unnoticed, for people who don't go up and look very closely. How do you find that 500 species of caterpillars? You've got to look for them. They're trying to hide from you and all the birds, so they're looking like bark or they're looking like a diseased part of a leaf. They're hiding in the bark crevices. They only feed at night. They're doing the best they can to make sure you don't see them. 
this is a, a case of knowledge generating interest. And then interest generates compassion. And that's, that's the goal we're going for here. Compassion to appreciate that oak, protect that oak, know that it's happening, similar things are happening on other trees. So to appreciate and protect all of, all of nature, I guess that's the main reason. Get that knowledge out there to generate the interest so that we can start to protect the natural world for our own good. We need diverse ecosystems to produce the ecosystem services to keep us alive. Nature is not optional. And if we don't appreciate what's out there, we're going to continue to let it disappear, which is just, it's just a deadly mistake. That's that ignorance we talked about in the beginning. We've got to, we've got to cure that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Doug Tommy about his new book, The Nature of Oats, and that you get a chance to read this wonderful book. And I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues, and subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or our website, NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions. Com. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments, please send them to us through our website contact page, and we will share them on our Instagram page. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan, and I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.